This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Damien Smith. Damien is a curator, art historian, art critic and gallery director. And he joined me to talk about a new book which he edited called The Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. Damien has been working with this very special collection for many years. The collection was donated to La Trobe University by Jeff Raby, Australia's former ambassador to China. Damien talks about the artists, artworks and the varying artistic themes that are featured within the collection and that challenge our conception of Chinese contemporary art, as well as giving us cultural insights into China in the 21st century. I'm joined by the wonderful Dr Damien Smith. Damien is an art historian, an art critic and many other things. Uh, He has been the person behind the book, The Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. He edited the book. He also wrote a number of the essays in this book. And no doubt he's done a lot of work within the collection that is the Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. It is a very special one because it features about 174 artworks that Jeff Raby A.O., the former Australian ambassador to China donated to La Trobe University. And a number of them have been on display uh, in the last few months in Bendigo. So that's also been a great opportunity for people to see some of these works up close. But you get also a chance to do that by looking at this beautiful book, which you can buy. Uh, It's been published through Black Ink, the imprint being La Trobe University Press. And we are going to be talking about some of the themes that run throughout this collection of of artworks, as well as the different artists and their backstories, and what it tells us about contemporary China, also about Chinese history and Chinese art. And no doubt, we'll also be talking about the brilliant Jeff Raby, who is so multi-talented, and I guess you could call him a polymath, really. He's got so many different interests and passions. So I welcome onto the show Dr. Damien Smith. Hi there, Damien, and thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Amy, and great to be here. Oh, it's so wonderful to talk about this collection, and um, what a gift it is that Jeff Raby has done this for Australia, really, because He's been in such a unique position, hasn't he, to be able to collect contemporary Chinese art. And oftentimes when these artists were just emerging, were at the beginning of their careers in some cases. And so he's been, you know, purchasing these works, you know, well before they became big names. Jeff's story is really interesting. And, uh, you know, we can talk a bit about that, but I think also the fact that he has donated the collection is a real reflection of the fact that he has this deep personal investment in cultivating a really positive relationship between Australia and China. And and that really bears out in the gift of those works to La Trobe University. Um, But, you know, Jeff was in China in the 1980s. He was working in uh, the in the embassy uh, in the economics division, and uh, that that really reflects his training as an economist. Um, but I think the really interesting thing is, and he said it to me early on, was that 
he would have to go to government briefings on the state of the economy in China. But what he found was that he could see more of what was going on by being out on the street, by mingling with people, and especially by uh, hanging out with the artists and coming to see that there was a really big shift that was taking place away from the old rigid communist system to the situation. And this is really under Deng Xiaoping and the, uh, the opening up of the economy, where individuals were starting to gain their own voice and, uh, and express it through, through things like art and music. So that was one of the reasons that Jeff was so fascinated. But I think at heart, Jeff's, uh, as much as he's an ambassador, he's a kind of bohemian at heart. And he stayed friends with the artists that he met in the 1980s. And you can really, you know, travelling with him and visiting the artists, I could just see the, you know, the depth of connection there. And it was it was very moving, very moving just to see those those long relationships and relationships that went through pretty tumultuous uh, periods of Chinese history. Yeah, absolutely. And we've since seen uh, a new president in China who has certainly solidified his rule through the latest Congress, uh, that being Xi Jinping, who you say at the beginning of the book features, I guess, in the history of the publication of this book in its different iterations um, with a photograph that was taken of Xi Jinping at Kakadu National Park. And I was so interested in that little anecdote uh, and what it tells us about, I guess, not only Australia-China relations, but the way that the Chinese see their leader and the way that their leader is portrayed. That image of Xi Jinping and Jeff Raby uh, at, a, at a kind of roadside pub in Kakadu is so interesting. And it was the image that the Chinese censors were very uncomfortable with. They said it's too casual an image of the leader to be uh, featured in uh, a publication in China. And uh, and I did say, you know, it's actually quite a good news story. This is a story about Xi Jinping's interest in Aboriginal art. And uh, he expressed that desire to Jeff to travel to Kakadu to look at the, at the, the cave paintings that he'd been reading about. And uh, when they go to the caves at Nulunji and they meet the T.O. The traditional owner, uh, Jeffrey Lee, uh, this is the moment that uh, Xi Jinping is, uh, also discovers that Jeffrey Lee is a member of a tribe of one person. And so you have this meeting between somebody who's from a tribe of one and somebody who will become the leader of the most populous tribe on earth. And that kind of, you know, it's hard not to uh, imagine that uh, Xi Jinping, who often refers to the, the century of humiliation and the impact of colonisation, must have really reflected on, you know, the impact of colonisation in Australia as, you know, embodied in, in that situation. Absolutely. I am still reminded of, you know, the British and their role in China, their very negative role, mm. and uh, the number of artworks that were looted as well as stolen. Um, I wanted to take us back, I guess, to those who don't know Jeff Raby, just to give them a little bit of background into the man, his not only professional life, but also his, I guess, personal 
mode of being, and you would know this better than anyone else, I'm sure, but for those who don't know, Jeff Raby was Australia's ambassador to China between 2007 to 2011. Uh, He was ambassador under a number of prime ministers. Obviously, that was a tumultuous period of time here in Australia locally, but he certainly did kind of behave or not behave, but approach the role in a different way to a lot of other ambassadors did. And you can tell that through his way of focusing on the arts, among many other things, bringing in uh, not only artists in the visual arts, but also musicians into his circle of influence. Could you tell us a little bit about his connection to China through his role as ambassador and the unique way that he approaches that that culture and the exchange between Australia and China? Sure. Well, look, you know, Jeff is a larger-than-life character and, uh, you know, he he would probably um, describe himself as a bon vivant. He's somebody who knows how to have a good time uh, and he enjoys, you know, socialising, he enjoys throwing parties. His parties at the Australian Embassy were somewhat um, legendary <laughs> and, uh, you know, he uh, he employed uh, music groups like the Uyghur rock group Asker and Grey Wolf to perform at the at the embassy, um, and so you know he's somebody who he doesn't take a kind of a dry approach to being an ambassador, and uh, and it's a very celebratory kind of way of doing business, and it's very hard not to be uh, to be drawn into that. Um, there's, there is an anecdote in the book where he is visiting uh, uh, Ray Hughes, the art dealer Ray Hughes in Sydney, who had a similar way of operating. And it was in Sydney that Jeff introduced Chinese contemporary art to um, the Chinese ambassador to Australia. And that was somebody who was unlikely to be uh, hanging out in bohemian circles in China. So those kinds of situations are really valuable because they, you know, open up all kinds of dialogue and Jeff's just the person to be doing that kind of thing. Absolutely. And one also kind of interesting fact that I knew from my interview with Jeff a while ago, but many may not know, is that he's actually travelled to every province in China and he did so while he was ambassador, something he was very proud of. But for those who don't really understand the scope of China, you share in the book, you know, just how wide and and expansive China is, but also how many borders it shares with other countries as well. Yes, I don't have those figures right to hand. Something like 14 countries that border China. Uh, this is an enormously complex, uh, you know, thing to manage uh, for the Chinese administration. And Jeff has been really interested in the complexity of that situation, China bordering uh, South Asia, Kazakhstan, Russia, India, uh, Nepal, Bhutan. And he's travelled in all of those provinces, all 33 provinces. And even now, he just recently he was up on the, the Indian side of the border where there was that skirmish with India, Indian mm. and Chinese soldiers quite recently. And uh, he's writing a book now on the Stans, so Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and so on, and how there will be a sort of a contestation for resources in those regions in the in the not-too-distant future. So the, the art that he has collected 
you know, includes works from Tibet, from Xinjiang, from Inner Mongolia. And it really, you know, going through that collection, you get a sense of the multicultural nature of China, not just a sort of singular Han identity, but one that's brimming with all sorts of crossovers and, uh, and complexities. Indeed. And the book says that there are 55 ethnic minorities in China. So yeah. it is very culturally uh, and ethnically diverse. It's mm. something that I think a lot of Australians might find hard to wrap their heads around, but I'm sure that those who visit China would appreciate it, certainly. Um, let's dive into some of the aspects of this collection. And also, I guess, the the framework for collecting that Jeff Raby might have had, whether it was formal or informal. Mm. You know, how does Jeff Raby and how did Jeff Raby approach collecting art? It's a really good question. And actually, when uh, when we, we met, uh, Jeff said to me, look, I really need you to tell me what I've been doing because <laughs> I haven't collected with any theme or anything, you know, in mind. I've just picked up the things that I really like and sometimes just because I have a social connection to an artist. And he he disavowed uh, having any sort of uh, anything in mind when he collected. But what I found, and, you know, that was the, the, the process where I, I go through the collection, I measure all of the works, I catalogue everything, and it very readily became apparent to me that there were some very strong dominant themes, uh, particularly uh, issues of politics, power, uh, sexuality was another theme that was really major in the collection. And so uh, I started to construct a narrative around those those master themes and then break and then underneath that breaking it down into um, for instance you know collecting it on the on the periphery of that great empire from Tibet and Xinjiang and so on and then uh, other subsets like looking at um, at mediums and uh, and history of China that sort of thing Mm, indeed. And the chapter titles are very revealing as to mm. some of the themes of the collection. And we will go through them. Uh, one particular artist who certainly appears in a number of the chapters mm -hmm. is an artist by the name of Guo Jun. Yes. And he, I would love to hear about because he sounds like a fascinating character and also clearly is a very talented artist. Guo Jun is a is a remarkable artist, and in fact, we were just talking about the fifty five ethnic minorities. Uh, Guo Jun is from Guizhou in southern China, um, and uh, but he's somebody who joined the army, and he also trained in the official propaganda style of painting. Um, and you've mentioned one of his works, you know, prior. Um, a work called The Cast and the Crew, which is mm -hmm. a black and white painting of a group of soldiers. And at first glance, you just sort of think, oh, this is a very casual scene of Chinese soldiers. But if you if you have a look at the the insignia on their their hats, you'll see that some of them are Chinese and some of them are Vietnamese, and this is really an allusion to uh, the the war between China and Vietnam, and that was a war that's not widely known um, in the way of the American Vietnam War, uh, but it's also a war that China was came the worse off. And were, um, kicked out of Vietnam. 
So uh, it's a sort of image that, um, you know, there are kind of subtext in that image about power and, uh, um, you know, you really have to see the painting, but um, it's about that situation. And he was actually involved in that war. Mm, and they're very much smiling, like a kind of candid photo where mm. they're, you know, they have their fingers up, a lot of them with the peace sign. Uh, they look like they're having a great time together. And it also, to me, says, well, are there really good and bad? Is there really good and evil in every war? You know, that the, the mm. cast and crew, the people who are the soldiers, the battle pieces on the ground, you know, a lot of them often see that there's a lot of blurred lines between sides and they often end up finding themselves at times to empathise with the enemy. Indeed. And it's funny that you should be mentioning uh, ambiguity in Guozhen's work because, in fact, the reason that he had to leave China, in fact, was thrown out of China, um, and he, he did have an Australian passport at that point, uh, was that he he has an absolute, uh, you know, emphatic stance on the events that occurred in Tiananmen in 1989. And he made that uh, crystal clear on the anniversary of of the uprising, um, when he, uh, you know, produced a sculpture which was a, a diorama of Tiananmen, and he covered it in rotting pig meat, and then invited the foreign journalists in. And uh, needless to say, uh, that was uh, that was a gesture that was just really not not accepted by the authorities in China. And uh, and he now lives in Sydney. Indeed. And he's still, you know, putting out a lot of work and we will get to some of his other works in just a moment. So let's park that for now. Um, mm. But let's also talk about some of those other pieces in that chapter that's looking at some of the political um, issues and and political pop art, as it mm -hmm. might be termed. There are some other ones in there, like um, a 20 Maos by Hua Jinming. Yes. And uh, there's also an interesting couple of series by Qian Shanchun. Could you tell us about those? Yeah. So the work by uh, Hua Jinming, 20 Maos, is, as you can imagine, a grid of uh, 20 images of Mao Zedong. Now, those, those sorts of images that one associates with Mao Zedong, those kind of uh, iconic images of propaganda, the, the, the rules for artists who were painting Mao were very, very strict. And so much so, it was, it's very similar to how images of the Buddha was painted. Now, we know the term geometry, but applied to the painting of Icons, we call that iconometry, so a very strict geometry. And in, in one of those images of Mao, you can start to see a bit of that gridding taking place. So overall, the effect is, is one of kind of deconstruction and sort of pulling apart this icon. And, uh, and you can start to see that it breaks down into a kind of psychedelic uh, kind of aspect or, you know, the disappearance of Mao. Um, and it's it's really a kind of critique of what people were required to accept in the cultural sphere for so long. And uh, that work is dated 2008, uh, which is really in that period where artists were starting to 
uh, you know, mock some of that political iconography. Mm. And there are some others that are quite, I don't know, vibrant, I would say, and and have that pop visuality to it. So um, if we look at Lee Daping, and he has a, a lot of pig heads, you know, there's a pig motif that goes through some of his works in this collection. Um, it, you know, it has a lot of, I don't know, it says a lot, it's very expressive. It kind of comes off the page in this book and I'm sure it's even more impressive in person. Could you tell us about those works and that particular artist and their approach? Sure. Lida Pung's work is really vibrant. Uh, it's quite large scale as well. When you see the paintings in the flesh, they're very uh, vigorously painted and uh, more so than it comes across in the book, but he's got that that kind of classic uh, propaganda style of painting. But these images of pigs are really kind of lampooning uh, prestige projects. There's a, uh, a pig in a space suit, you know, that's mocking the, uh, uh, you know, the, the space program in China. There's this image of the Gilded Age where the, the pig is almost drowning in golden objects and uh, these are very, very ironical works, and I think that people readily pick up on the message of, um, you know, uh, somebody having a bit of a, uh, a playful dig at, uh, at those kinds of projects in China. Mm, and they span from 1997 to 2002 to 2007. Mm. So that was also quite interesting to me. How are they received you know, by Chinese in particular. I know that clearly the context that artists operate in in China has really evolved across the 80s, 90s and 1000s. How do some of these artists navigate that world? Like I've had some very interesting conversations with, uh, with, with my Chinese colleagues and with Jeff in regard to Li Depeng's work. Jeff has often mentioned to me that, uh, you know, the irony of these works are often lost on, on Chinese audiences, which I think is quite interesting. Um, but, of course, that whole uh, arena of political pop uh, and cynical realism has at times, you know, really... Uh, brought the artist into conflict with uh, with authorities who recognise that this is an attack on uh, on party policy, um, you know. So so those kinds of things do certainly take place. But outside of China, those those works have really been elevated and uh, and celebrated. And I think it's complex because, of course, that's a very important part of Chinese art, uh, you know, contemporary art, but it's not the only aspect of Chinese contemporary art. And that's where I think that that continual uh, perception by Western commentators that Chinese art is simply um, a confrontation with authority, it really reduces it to a kind of unsophisticated or unnuanced way of thinking about it. And that's something we really wanted to bring out in the book is that if you go beyond that, there are so many other things going on in Chinese art uh, that's not just political. And uh, and I hope that that's sort of come across in the various chapters that we've put together. It certainly does. I remember reading about uh, a section where you essentially were saying that art in the past, certainly in Europe, but also elsewhere with the avant-garde, it was often used as a kind of tool for politics, a weapon and something Mm. that was used um, to aid political movements. Whereas in China, that is not 
what it is. It's quite reductive, as you say, to say that that's the role of Chinese contemporary art and that really it has its own value and its mm. own purpose beyond any of that. I think, you know, one of the chapters that we we um, put together, Tradition and Change, the Six Arts in Modern Times, was really, uh, you know, inspired by the idea of the six arts that were developed during the Zhou dynasty. And, um, you know, these were artists or, well, scholars rather, who felt that there were certain accomplishments that one needed to, to master, uh, such as music, calligraphy, mathematics, but also things like archery um, and, and the enactment of rites. So, and the reason I mention the rites in particular is that sometimes when we see Chinese performance art, the tendency is to say, oh, here is a Chinese artist who has picked up on a Western mode of practice of, of uh, performance art, and there is a sort of a mimicking going on here. But actually, if you look at, uh, you know, the history of, of um ritual and the performing of rites in China, and then you compare it, for example, with an artist like uh, Kang Xin, who famously, you know, prostrates himself on the ground and would also uh, put his tongue in close contact with the surfaces that he's near. He would lick things. Uh, these are these are kind of um, these prostrations are rites that go back, you know, a long way in Chinese history. That's so fascinating to say that. he. Um, there is a piece there, Digital Pigment Print by Kang Xing, uh, Communication Series Number 4, London, which is uh, very illustrative of what you've just said for anyone yeah. wondering. Uh, let's talk about, a bit about that chapter, given that you've raised it, because there mm -hmm. were some that particularly stuck out to me and obviously calligraphy and ink uh, certainly has played a big role in Chinese history and there's a lot of pieces that feature calligraphy and ink on paper. Yeah. Uh, one that really stood out to me, uh, which was quite striking, was by Song Ling uh, called Cox Comb Flower Celosia Cristata from 2013, which was an ink on paper work. Would you be able to, if, to describe it for us in the best way that you can? Because I find it quite difficult to describe, but it's uh, so fascinating to look at. It's uh, such an interesting work and also how that uh, came into the collection. Song Ling is a very, very well-known artist, but he's, but not for this style of painting. However, uh, I think Jeff was at an auction and actually the artist, uh, Ah Shen, said to Jeff, that's a Song Ling, you've got to buy that. And so he, that's how it came into the collection. And it's a, it's a very... Uh, abstract work and it's almost like looking at clouds or peering into a cave mm. and there's that sense of what am I seeing and it's a work that you can get lost in, it's very dreamy uh, and you can see the ink bleeding into the water, it's perhaps a nocturnal scene. So it's an, it's an image of a particular flower, but presented in a way that maybe I'm seeing this flower at night. And and beyond that, it's taking me into a kind of a dreamy sort of existence. So it's a very seductive work. 
and uh, and one that does not have the iconic, uh, striking features of some of the other works in the collection, but it's one of those works you can spend a lot of time with just sort of looking at and being carried into this, uh, these sort of veils of reality. Mm, and similarly, but in a, a very different visual way, Chen Yu, uh, with the untitled work from 2014 and enamel on canvas, it also is quite abstract, but very vibrant compared to obviously the ink, which was black and white. This to me is one of those ones, which is also transporting and it makes you think, you know, what am I looking at? Is it a flower? Is it a cloud? Is it a pillow that someone could be sitting on in the sky? You know, what do you think about that work? Well, I remember visiting Chen Yu's studio and seeing these large paintings on the floor and this process of pouring enamel paint and uh, creating these big abstract flows. And now this work was painted in 2014. And from a Western perspective, you know, we have a long history of large painterly abstraction. But in the Chinese context, uh, you see artists um, from the 1980s who for the first time have encountered artists like Jackson Pollock. So this was a really, uh, you know, new approach to painting. And, and I think Chen Yu has really picked up on, on that kind of enthusiasm for modes of abstraction. Mm. And, and I think a lot of um, Western viewers may sort of see this as coming from an earlier era in Western art, but of course it's got a later timeline in China. And it's this great sort of red uh, flow and perhaps there's a figure in the middle of it, but again, very mysterious and a work that you can just get lost in those sort of flows of paint and, and shapes. Yeah, absolutely. It's just stunning. I wanted to talk about one of the chapters uh, that you particularly wrote, this essay for it's called On Erotica and Its Provocations. And, you know, you highlight that erotic love has a long history in China and you also say that erotic depictions can be seen uh, to constitute an entire artistic genre which would span from the Song Dynasty uh, and their poems through to Shanghai films from the 1930s mm. and, of course, contemporary art and in Jeff Raby's collection here. And it is very interesting just how different a lot of these works are and the way that um, erotic subject matter is depicted. And certainly there were a couple that really stuck out to me. I mean, they were all all wonderful, but uh, another by Guo Jian, um, mm. One Word, One Dream, and D AKA Dirty Mind from 2004, mm. which was a cast resin glass, but there are different iterations of this piece. Could you take us through what it really is? Because, I mean, it, it looks like this gorgeous rock that's been carved yeah. into and, and very intricately depicting different scenes and figures. Sure. Well, look, I think one thing I'd say about the erotica is that, you know, during the, the, Mao, the Mao period, uh, the idea of presenting something like erotica in the public was an absolute taboo. And uh, some of the artists who I spoke to uh, said that they had been arrested for painting a model 
in their own studio, a, a nude model in their studio, and this was seen as a very sort of um, taboo thing. However, if you look at uh, some of the propaganda and particularly the, uh, the, the, the revolutionary operas with the the revolutionary girls in their their tight uniforms and there's a kind of a um, a promise of sexuality like you know get on board with the revolution and you know we'll all have a good time together so it's kind of always there in the in in the 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 work even during that period so that particular work that you you reference by Guo Zhen, which is actually a car a cast resin and the reason you might think that there are several iterations is that because there's a light inside of that resin and it changes colour. So it's this great glowing orb. And it's quite a large piece, but it has that feel of something like jade or crystal that's being carved. And what he's carved into that uh, are Sung, images of Sung Dynasty erotica. And... Uh, what's what's the, the the overall shape, which is kind of like a brain, but it is also um, the shape of the bird's nest stadium that was built for the Olympics. And I believe One World, One Dream was the slogan for the Beijing Olympics. So he's making this kind of linkage between a, a large public event, such as the Olympics, and the idea of... Um, you know, a kind of a, a collective uh, kind of excess, uh, a kind of orgy of, of life and, and sport and money all happening all together. So I think that's really what's going on in that work. And, uh, you know, it's very finely carved. It's a beautiful mm. object as it's well. It's stunning, yeah. yeah. I love that um, you've shown it in the different lights so you can see just how beautiful it is and, and the different qualities it has. Um, I wanted to make sure we do talk about a, a female artist that I thoroughly enjoyed seeing her work. And a lot of these pieces, to me, you know, you look at it and it looks like a vulva, um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. And there are a couple of pieces. There's uh, Rose Wong, Untitled from 2016, which is thread, paper, and resin, and then there's also this other phenomenal piece uh, by Rose Wong, Untitled from 2017, bronze patina, wood, and resin, and it it has two different kind of sides, and on the internal side of this hand grenade, it looks like there's a, a peach, and then what looks like, to me at least, uh, a vulva again. So, could you tell us about Rose Wong's work? Sure. Look, I think. Um you know there are there are a number of um, of female artists in the collection, and I, I would say that you know in general it's a fairly male dominated art scene in China, uh, and Jeff has uh, curated shows of uh, Chinese female artists in Australia, and has been really keen to promote the work of emerging artists. And Rose is certainly one of those artists. But the piece that you mention, of course, is a large hand grenade. And it's split down the middle and you open it up and you get this kind of image of genitalia inside the hand grenade. It's almost like this kind of, uh, you know, orgasmic explosion that's going to go off with the hand grenade. And, uh, you know, I just think they're really um, uh, unambiguous works, shall we say. Mm. 
and sort of straight to the point. And, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of what Rose is doing. But I think also these works, if you contrast a work like that, which is very immediate and uh, the, the kind of, I guess, the satisfaction of the work uh, becomes is sort of immediately apparent. But if you compare that with somebody like Shao Lu, and again, you know, she's she hasn't got a hand grenade, but she's got uh, a pistol, and she's uh, she's firing directly at the viewer. And this is a work that the more you study it, the more and the more you read about it, you realise that this is an incredibly complex work, uh, even though it's got that that just that initial sense of violence. Well, could we just talk about Sha Lu because her work is very momentous really in the history of Chinese contemporary art and it's been referenced I guess in a range of ways she certainly had an original exhibition um, participating in the China avant-garde staged in 1989 at the National Art Museum in Beijing Uh, but then subsequently of course the 2004 dialogue piece references that exhibition and what happened there could you give us the backstory of why Zha Lu's work and why she as an artist is quite significant? Uh, sure so um, that that exhibition at the National Gallery in 1989 which was the first official exhibition of Chinese contemporary art was enormously significant and uh, you know Shao Lu was one of the participating artists and she went into the exhibition once it had opened and she, she took a pistol with her. Her um, artwork that was on display consisted of two telephone booths. There was a man, a figure of a man on the phone in one booth and a figure of a woman on the phone. And it was really a work about, you know, dialogue and perhaps the, the difficulties and pitfalls of dialogue, particularly between you know men and women, and uh, but then she she came in and she shot the work with her pistol, and of course you know she was arrested as would anyone be in any gallery anywhere in the world had they done the same thing, and you know that shot you know that went down in history as the first shot fired in Tiananmen. It's like the little Tiananmen. Um, and the critics very quickly, the Chinese critics very quickly attributed the work to Shaolu and to her husband and and then said that the work was political in nature. Uh, in the you know in the long run, Shaolu went into hiding. She moved to Australia, and ten years later she published her memoir about the event in which she said, "Look, you know, this was not uh, politically motivated in the way that you think, and this was really a build-up of tensions within within herself, uh, resulting from um, you know uh, a, a kind of um, sexual abuse that she experienced, and um, and it just kind of built up, and she and it sort of exploded out of her, and the fact that that work continued to be um, redeveloped in various forms by Shalu over time really added to the complexity of it. And it's something that just has to be unpacked and, un- and understood 
in a bigger sense rather than just saying, oh, yeah, it's just about politics, you know. Mm. And I think that's the thing about art is that it can be personal and political and sociological. It's entangled and complex, and this work absolutely embodies those kinds of complexities. Yeah, <clears throat> it's wonderful that Jeff has this photographic self-portrait dialogue in his collection and that, you know, mm. Australia and Latrobe get to see that and have the benefit of seeing her work in that way. We're going to have to skip a couple of chapters, mm -hmm. unfortunately, quite a few actually, but my favourite chapters I've got to say that we haven't yet covered, certainly surrealism was just mm. moving and amazing. There were so many different mediums that were used and I can't even begin to describe how wonderful the surrealism section was. Uh, but then also, of course, uh, looking at those works from Tibet, Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. And then finally as well, looking at the future of Chinese contemporary art and some of those uh, quite, you know, well-known pieces, including one by Chen Man, uh, Ms. Wan Studies Hard. Mm. Um, that one obviously features a couple of times in this book. Yeah. With the... he... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, just to begin with the, the section on surrealism. Um, I, uh, you know, when I was putting the the collection, you know, in order, I recognised, of course, that there were works that fitted neatly into well-recognised phases of Chinese art, like political pop and uh, cynical realism, for instance. But I kept coming across these works that had these really surreal qualities to them. And I thought it's so interesting that nobody has really written about this side of Chinese art, that there's this in amazing kind of uh, immersion in uh, in the uncanny and, and in the imagination, you know. And when you live in a city like Beijing that's being torn down and rebuilt and people go away for a couple of weeks and they come back and they can't even recognise their own street because it's changed so much. You know, you, you're actually living in a kind of a surreal, hyper-real condition. And so I really felt uh, that it needed to be bracketed in this way that looked at the role of the imagination. Uh, and I mention uh, the, the the philosopher Zhuangzi. This is a, you know, a very... A famous story of a man who dreams he's a butterfly and when he wakes up he says to himself, well, how do I not know I am a butterfly dreaming I am a man? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we, we in the West talk about Descartes and I think therefore I am, but to say, you know, perhaps I am a butterfly dreaming I am a man is kind of the Chinese repost. And it's that kind of thinking and questioning about reality that I think really plays out in these works. So it's really great to have those together. And of course, Guan Wei features uh, heavily in that uh, section of the book. Um, there are other fabulous images uh, of, of scholars who appear to have stared so long at their scholar rocks that their faces have turned to stone and they look like Chinese scholar rocks. There are artists like uh, A Shen, very famous now in Australia and elsewhere. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful kind of dreamy uh, selection of works. There are many artists who were living out at the Sungjuan Artist Village as well. So I sort of felt that those artists who had that surreal bent were also kind of hanging out together. 
Um, and then there are interesting works on paper by Chen Wenling, very, very famous artist, but best known for his sculptures. And then when you see the, his works on paper of, uh, you know, like an elephant on fire, but the elephant is composed of all sorts of smaller objects, they're really curious and fascinating works. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, I know that we've probably piqued the interest of many, many people listening. Uh, we've been talking about the Jeff Raby collection of contemporary Chinese art, which uh, Dr. Damien Smith here has edited and also co-written and done a lot more in-depth, close work with artists behind these works, obviously the artworks themselves and the collector, Jeff Raby. Uh, if people want to pick up the book, they absolutely can so they can engage with these works. Uh, but do you think there'll be a chance for some people to be able to see them again in future, Damien? The, the long-term plan, uh, well, or in the medium term, I know that the La Trobe Art Institute is looking at touring the exhibition to regional galleries. And, uh, and in, in beyond that, La Trobe University are looking at developing a museum to house the collection. So I, I believe they're looking for benefactors at the moment who could contribute to that project. But the other thing is that La Trobe also has one of the largest collections of Chinese propaganda posters, I think, anywhere in the world, something like 3,000 posters in the Stuart Fraser collection. So if, uh, you know, those two collections together really show something special about China, and I know that there'll be ongoing research around the collection. The book tells some of the stories, but it's a, it's a really a, a story that contains so many other stories and so many other projects that I know it'll keep sort of returning benefits to the university and to the community long into the future. No doubt, no doubt. I can't wait to see a lot of these works in person, but this book is truly an artwork in and of itself, Damien. So congratulations on putting it together and all of your work uh, with the collection and with Jeff. And I do hope people check it out. It's published through La Trobe University Press, the Jeff Raby Collection of Contemporary Chinese Art. Thank you so much, Damien Smith, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.